0: We have to make some very hard choices to really take a hard stand on fossil fuel extraction and emissions and try to find ways to help people in that transition going forward. And we're going to have to adapt because it's, it's too late, baby.
1: Welcome to another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. So today on Animalia, we are talking about the California wildfires. I have three very different and special and valuable guests that I interviewed for this episode, and we're going to hear from them throughout. The goal of this episode is not to sort of drown you with all of the just horrific stats and damage that these fires have caused. I'm pretty sure everybody listening to this podcast was aware of that. We'll we'll touch on it briefly. <clears throat> but primarily, you know, I want to talk about where, you know, what drove what, what what's causing this? It's it's there's no single factor at play here in terms of the ignition, the spreading, the size, the scope of, of these fires. And what can we expect going forward? What does 2021 look like? What does 2021 look like? You know, what, what is the new normal? You know, how do we adapt? Uh, what can we do to mitigate these, these wildfires? And it's not just a California issue, of course. It's Oregon, Washington, Colorado. And I imagine that's going to spread into other states in the, years, in the years to come. And of course, it's a global issue. Uh, it's, it's crazy to think that the Australian bushfires actually took place in 2020 because you know a lot has taken place since then. And they did. I mean, they technically started in December of 2019, but it was a January 2020 really kind of global disaster. And so we're going to see this happen all over the world. But today, you know, we really want to talk about what can we learn from the scope and size and frequency of these fires, and what can we do to mitigate that going forward, and and how do we need to how do we need to adapt to this this new normal? Let me first introduce the folks that you're going to hear from this episode, and they're all coming from different angles, and that's by design because it's really important we get a variety of perspectives on a topic and an issue like the wildfires that are affecting so many. So first, I spoke with Jonathan Parfrey, He is the executive director of Climate Resolve. If you don't know Climate Resolve, it's an incredible organization in California, connecting communities, companies, and policymakers to address the climate crisis and push for solutions across all three levels. He's also a former commissioner of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Just a, an incredible guy, fascinating guy. And uh, yeah, Let me, let me let, let me let Jonathan introduce himself.
0: Sure. Well, my background, candidly, is in social services. I began in 1981 moving with my family to a community in East Los Angeles, in Boyle Heights, where we started doing direct service to the homeless of Los Angeles. And when we started, the homeless population on LA Skid Row was very small. And then the crack epidemic took place. And we went from serving like maybe 80 people a day to a couple thousand. Uh, It was unbelievable. And so being in that sort of massive change was really profound. And our community, we also engaged in trying to oppose the presence of nuclear weapons and trying to do something about the threat of nuclear war, which was a very big issue in the early 80s. And that was really the crucible that I came out of, of living in a community, inviting the homeless into our home and taking on a huge existential threat at that time, which I think all of those activities have ended up serving me well in trying to now take on climate change.
1: Okay, I also spoke with Matt Fiorenza. Now, Matt is a veteran firefighter in Anaheim who today now focuses all of his energy and work on providing mental health services to first responders after going through a number of mental health issues and crisis and, you know, anxiety, stress, PTSD that many first responders face. So inspired by Matt and the work he's doing and sort of the mountain he's overcome on his on his own end and you know to introduce Matt you know the the year he became a firefighter his son was born and you know sort of he shared a moving story and an anecdote about those two worlds coming together so let's let's meet Matt
2: I remember it was a long day, long day it was me and my partner you got to do all the ladder throws you got to do all the hose lays you got to give classes on the tools you got to be able to Tie off rescue systems, tie knots. It's it's very very intense, and I remember throwing. It was a it was a roof ladder aloft, and and I remember tr- climbing the ladder, and my turnouts were soaking wet. So I weighed, you know, ten times more than we normally weigh with everything and all the gear on and everything. And I remember trying to. You have to climb the ladder, then you got to throw the roof ladder up into the second story window. And I remember, and there's a certain way you have to do it. And I remember the thing slipping off my arm and thinking to myself, if this ladder falls right now, my whole year and everything I worked so hard for is going to go with it, you know? And, and I thought about my son and it was, it was a, it was an amazing moment. Cause I was like, I pictured his little face and I was able to, Muster up the last bit of strength I have to to throw that ladder into the window
1: and finally, I spoke to Bob Golden. Now, Bob is a lifelong mechanic from Fresno who has served the agricultural business his entire life. I actually found Bob through a post he uh, put out there on Facebook talking about you know how he felt. The issue of forest management wasn't being talked about enough around these wildfires, and you know I, he's right, frankly. And and I learned a lot from talking to Bob. He's a conservative conservative leaning fire. He's a conservative leaning environmentalist, which you know I think in today's you know sort of polarized political world sounds like a conundrum. Like a conservative environmentalist, well, yes, they can, they do exist, and you know, and and I think Bob is an example of somebody who, you know, just has a different viewpoint, doesn't disacknowledge climate change and um, other issues, but also is really focused on some local issues that I think need to have some light shed on them, and and frankly, you know, it's important to listen to the Bobs of the world because, like, for myself, as you know, I would say an activist fighting this climate crisis in every way I can. There are not a lot of Bobs in my life. and again that, that points to sort of the you know the echo chambers that we find ourselves in. and I think everybody here will will, get, will learn a lot from from the interview with Bob. So let's let's meet
3: Bob. Okay well, I, uh, I live in Fresno County, California, which is Central California. Um, been here since 1966 when I was born. I attended a small town school basically the whole town was agriculture after high school. Started my trade as a mechanic, worked heavy truck mechanic for 17 years. And then in 2007, my wife and I decided to start our own mobile mechanic business to support ranchers, farmers, anybody in agriculture that needed somebody to come to them, repair their equipment. Sierra Nevada mountains are right here in my backyard and been going up there since before I could remember. And that's, that's my background.
1: Okay. So let's get the gory details out of the way up front. I I promised I would not spend a lot of time talking about the, you know, sort of the horrific results of these wildfires, but just in case anybody truly has been living under a rock, which I guess uh, may be the case living in quarantine, Uh, you're, you're sort of, inflicted rock life, the, the the wildfires have been a, a, a disaster and there have been record setting in, in so many different ways. And I'm just going to talk about California for a second, but again, they have affected Oregon, Washington, and, and recently Colorado as well. In California alone, there have been over 9,000 different fires, 9,000 different wildfires in 2020. Nearly four and a half million acres have burned, or roughly 5% of the entire state. And hundreds and hundreds of thousands have either lost their home or have been forced to evacuate with millions of Californians now left questioning what the future holds. And the impact on firefighters has been devastating as well. You know, they, we rely on them to you know keep these fires in check as best they can. And they're out there. They've been out there every day and night on the front line. So rather than, you know, sort of me sort of describing how hard this has been on the firefighters, I'm just going to let Matt do it, who, you know, is, has been a firefighter himself. And now, you know, like I said, up top providing mental health services to first responders, including firefighters.
2: This has been the worst fire season in California's history. And we've had a lot of guys and a lot of my friends and a lot of people out, out on the fire line and out for a long time away from their families. And. Missing the birthday parties and missing the first steps and missing, you know, the first days of school and missing and now you got all these wives at home that are doing distance learning.
1: And then, you know, sadly or or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it, California does not keep um, actual record of the number of wildlife deaths, but there have for sure been tens, if not hundreds of millions, of non-human lives lost in these fires. Bob shared with me a disturbing but insightful anecdote about the volume of non-human lives lost here in California. So I'll I'll just, I'll just play that.
3: I talked to a woman two weeks ago and she's farther North than I am. She's up where the Creek fire is and she's a truck driver. And in 10 days time, she was contracted to haul off the dead animals. 17,000 pounds of dead wildlife is what she had to haul off because from the fires. That's everything from bear, deer, the big cats, plus domestic animals. Because these, once these animals are dead, they're a health hazard, so they've got to be hauled off. That's one person, seventeen thousand pounds in ten days.
1: Yeah, it's hard hard to imagine one person having to you know haul out that that volume of dead wildlife and yeah, God bless her soul, because that would, that would trigger the hell out of me. I would, I would not be able to do that and, and be functional. All right. Enough of the scary data points. The fires have been bad. Okay. That's, that's, let's all agree to that. So, so who is the blame? you know, where do we point the finger, which we, we seem to love to do in, in to today's modern social media driven world? It's, it's climate change. Is it forest management? Is it critically underfunded resources? Is it overpopulation? Is it, you know, overaggressive land policies? Is it political turmoil? Is it just natural? You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of all of these things. This is a complicated issue that has a lot of complicated factors. And that's all the more reason that we should be listening and learning right now and not just pointing fingers and jumping to singular conclusions.
2: I have definitely seen a, a progression of it getting worse. I can honestly say that from my first year on the job until now, it just seems like every fire season gets worse. And so, and that's, I think it's, there's a lot of contributing factors. I, I, You know, I know the media is getting beat up right now, and I'm not trying to say anything. I just, I think once the winds start blowing, and the weather's hot, the first thing the media does is mention that we're at a red flag warning, and then we have, we have people being irresponsible, and we have people that deliberately deliberately are setting these fires. So, I think that has a little bit to do with it. I, I, you know. I I'm not really an expert by any means on on climate change or or anything like that but has it gotten worse yeah it's getting worse is it is it exciting to put these to put all this video footage of stuff on the news yeah and people watch that and the wrong people see it and and they go out there and they want to be they want to be part of it. You know, some of it's being people being irresponsible. One of the fires set in Southern California was some irresponsibility with with a pyrotechnic. So, you know, a lot of it is fire is prevention. It's about education, you know, and then we've got power lines going down from, from the, the power line company. And there's all
1: those lawsuits going on. And all right. So let's break down these different factors. Well, we'll start with climate change just because, you know, that is... Sort of the halo effect around this, and you know, we'll 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 talk about that first. So, as a table setter, it's important to understand there's a difference between weather and climate, as Jonathan points out.
0: Well, here's here's the way I would look at it. There's a difference between weather and climate, and I think this is people get confused about this, and so it's okay to point out. You know, that this current year, in the year 2020, we're going to have over 4 million acres burned in California, and we still have another three months to go. That is a horrifying statistic. And yet, that's just one data point. What you look for when you're looking at climate impacts is the average of years. And so, what you're looking for are trends. And so, climate, by definition, is the average of weather. Climate, by definition, is an abstract concept. So if someone was visiting Los Angeles from New York, and it's a beautiful December day, and it's 74 degrees out, the, the person from New York will say, well, you have lovely weather today, and you have a great climate overall in California. And that would be an accurate statement. So, it's important to distinguish between weather and climate. The weather changes all the time. But when it comes to the climate and climate changes, you have to look at averages. So, you're asking me, like, provide some data. So, let me give it to you. And I went back when you asked the question, I decided to do a little homework. And I went back on the Cal Fire website and I looked at their list of fires from 1987 to present day and how many. Acres have been burned over uh, those many years. And so if you take a 10-year slice, like 1987 to 1996, wonderful years, in my opinion, there was about 387,000 acres per year on average that burned over that 10-year period. Now, let's take another 10-year slice, which is 2011-2011. To 2020. In that period of time, the average was 1,115,000 acres. So there's over a tripling of the amount of acres burned from the late 80s into the 90s to the last decade. And that's a statistic. That's a statistic that is directly correlated to climate change to show that with this new, warmer climate that we're living in, there has been much vaster damage due to wildfire.
1: California is certainly getting warmer and drier. There's no doubt about that. The data backs it up. Southern California, for example, has seen the average annual temperature rise three degrees over the last hundred years. And and maybe for some of you, that doesn't sound like a lot, but for context, you know the Paris Accord that... You know, President Trump, soon to be ex-President Trump, infamously removed the U.S. from that we are thankfully now reentering into in, I think, 37 days, calls for a, you know, kind of a limit on a target goal on limiting global temperature increases below two degrees by the end of the century, because just two degree increases can increase adverse weather hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, wildfires by as much as 50%. A two-degree increase can reduce critical insect populations, such as bees, by as much as 10%. And two-degree temperature increase on a global level can fully melt the Arctic and kill all the coral we have left on Earth. So, you know, this is not here to, like, You know this data point to be a doomsday because I know a lot of climate change talk can can be can come across that way. It's just saying like the stuff matters, and you know when we say California, Southern California increased its temperature by three degrees in the last hundred years, that's a big deal. Climate change though is not the only factor in these adverse conditions igniting some of these problems. For example, as we learned from Bob, when forests are too dense, trees end up competing for water and conditions, conditions get a lot drier. And this is not a problem everywhere, but it is a problem in California where droughts are already an issue.
3: In my teens, I could go up here, the area that's just recently burned, and you could see through the forest, the trees were ideally you no know, 40 trees per acre. Now we have 400 trees per acre, and that's trees that are competing for the water. That's That's why we had the bark beetle kill. I've watched it when logging stopped and the forest became overgrown. Now you have more trees stressed from no water and the trees are closer together, which when we do have infestations such as the bark beetle, that beetle can move from tree to tree rapidly and easily. The trees don't have enough water because there's too many. So the tree doesn't produce enough sap. Sap is the enemy of the bark beetle. If If the tree is healthy, the beetle really doesn't have a chance. So just seeing the the change in the last 20 years, not just to the forest, but to my little communities around here that were self-sufficient. I mean, thriving, paid for their own school districts, had their own mechanics and grocery stores and supply houses that depended on the logging. Those little communities are dying now. We often associate
1: more trees as pro-environment and fewer trees as anti-environment. And this this is true on a global aggregate level. We need trees. We need forestation. They do an incredible job of, you know, sequestering carbon, supporting life, you know, creating oxygen for us to breathe. They, they like, yeah, we need trees. But in an area like California that is prone to droughts, heat, and high seasonal winds, a forest too dense, Can actually make fire conditions worse. And and we saw that play out this year. We saw it play out in 2018. We've seen it play out, you know, really for the last two decades as the rate and scope of these fire season has worsened year after year after year. Now, nature can take care of this on its own over time, but we don't really have the luxury of time with the lives being lost and impacted by these fires. It's also worth noting that climate change is likely not igniting the fires, but rather aiding in their spread and size.
0: This later, of uh, developments into the wild urban interface, the, the wooey as it's called. And because of that, you can see a lot more ignitions of fires just from human activity. And that's the thing that it's really important to parse out related to wildfires. Because there's ignitions of what starts it, and then there's the fuel that keeps it going. And that's the, the stuff in the forest. And then there's the conditions that the, where you could find that fuel, like how dry is that fuel? And so when it comes to the ignitions, I am going to say that probably you cannot attribute any of that to climate change. I mean, we've had some weird ignitions recently, like in August. Over the course of the week, there were over 12,000 lightning strikes in California. It's an incredibly rare instance to have that. But we had 12,000 in a week and mainly in the Bay Area and parts north that that those lightning strikes were responsible for a lot of the fires. And I don't think there's anyone right now who's done an attribution study to link those lightning strikes to climate change. Maybe they will in the future, but I don't, I don't know if, if that's there. But when it comes to climate change, what it does, it dries out the fuel that's out there, the trees, the plants. And because of those extreme temperatures and that basic drying out of vegetation, it creates the kindling for a small fire that may have naturally occurred to become a large fire. And what may have once been a large fire in decades past now becomes a record-breaking mammoth fire. And so the the fire ecologists and the climate scientists um, that we know have worked together on doing different Uh, predictive studies and looking at wildfire in California, looking out over the, the next few decades. And what I find absolutely stunning is that they've, early on in this decade, they predicted what we're living through right now. The only thing is they got it wrong in that they said it would be happening around 2040. And what we're seeing are these effects much sooner than that, decades sooner.
1: Oh, and those natural fire breaks that we used to have, When, you know, we harvested timber from the California forests, or we actually listened to and allowed indigenous people, such as Native Americans in this country, to properly manage lands, which, you know, we don't do anymore. Well, when you lose these fire breaks, fires spread faster and easier. And that creates a problem.
3: Exactly. Um, Yeah, that's. That's exactly it. when logging was working here, we had logging roads that was a, that's a natural or a, not a natural that's a fire break. If, if something does happen, those roads could be used to either fight the fire or they would stop the fire. In the last again 30 years, Forest Service has de- it's called decommissioning. They put up a gate, no public access, and those roads become just piles of brush and small trees. So when a fire does start, one, you got more fuel load, and two, you don't have the access routes to get in and fight it.
1: So what are those ignition points? If climate change didn't start the fires and only aid in spreading them and increasing their, their size and veracity, well, what ignited them? So, again, here we also have a number of factors. Some of it is human activity and irresponsible behavior, as Matt pointed to earlier. So you may recall the now viral incident of the gender reveal party and their pyrotechnic snafu that caused one of the larger fires in September. And, you know, I just want to point out, like, why are there gender reveal parties? What is the point? Why? Like, I don't I mean, full disclosure, I don't have a child, but I'm pretty positive if and when I do, I'm not going to have a gender reveal party. It's something that I'm just going to update people over a text message. Anyway, so that party literally caused the Eldorado fire. Then there are issues with outdated and dangerous power lines. This is a big problem in California, as Jonathan points out.
0: A lot of the ignitions for the fires that we're seeing over the past few years have come from downed utility lines as, you know, the distribution lines that are going out to homes in remote areas. And one of the things that we haven't, we don't give utilities the permission to come up with alternatives. So let's say there's an enclave of, you know, five homes, you know, above Lake Tahoe that they currently have to have a power line going to that home. But instead, what if utilities were given the opportunity to create a kind of solar, decentralized battery storage mini grid? You know, for the, those homes, and they don't have to run a power line there, but they have to maintain it. So you would have a utility like PG and that has the option of being able to to provide energy services without having to maintain this huge grid with all these power lines that are incredibly risky. That's something that I think would be an interesting policy change that we could also enact. But see, this is the kind of thinking where we, we have to leave 1960s sort of frames of thinking, and we have to get into the new century that we're occupying.
1: Seasonal weather is also a factor. August in California saw over 12,000 lightning strikes that ignited over 600 different fires. Now, again, that is somewhat natural, somewhat related to the, you know, the changing climate. It's a, it's a mix of both. But, but some of these fires, were indeed, were started by what are kind of like known as dry lightning storms. And then we have population size. This is also an issue. Jonathan points out that of the 40 million people living in the state of California, as many as 30% of them live in what are called wildlife urban interface zones. Woos. And this is a problem in that people often leave behind, you know, whether it's an open gas container or flammable objects outside, you know, their patio or, you know, there's there's lots of sort of human activity and remnants trash that are very combustible. And when the fires run into this, that creates a problem as well.
0: I've heard a statistic that thirty percent of Californians, a third, live in the wildland urban interface, the Wooey zones. A lot of people. So there are forty million people in in California, so it's somewhere around twelve million. yeah. However, you know, I think there are things that we can do to deal with the housing crisis, and it's real. There's no two ways about it. California is a popular place, and I think there's been some very good developments over the last few decades in terms of curbing the problems with air quality from stationary sources. There's, I remember, you know, living in Los Angeles in the 80s, you couldn't see the mountains for months at a time. And now that's not the case. Uh, our air has gotten demonstrably better. It's a nice place to be. When we have a relatively decent climate, the exception being that we've had a lot of smoke in our air of late, and that's been very troubling. But overall, it's a nice place to live. So people like it here, and they come here. And I think people want a nice place to live. So we believe that there should be greater density in cities and we should save the open spaces as much as possible for uh, the biodiversity of this amazing state that we live in. And there, there's been so much encroachment already on uh, wild places within the state that we feel that we should trying to limit that as
1: much as possible. Now, as we're going to learn a little later in talking to Bob, and, and you know, I think in the data uh, supports this, more, most people are moving into the cities and that's actually part of the remedy and the adaptation that we're going to talk about with Jonathan as well. But still today, a lot of people are living in these wildlife urban interface zones and it's something that, you know, certainly needs to be addressed. Furthermore, insurance rates are skyrocketing, which is leaving many without coverage.
3: A lot of these homes that burnt had already had their fire insurance canceled because the insurance companies looked at the condition of this forest in the last five, eight years and said, there's no way any of this will survive. So we're just going to cancel your policy. Many of the the homes and cabins that burnt will never get rebuilt because there's no way to insure that new structure as long as the forest is in this terrible shape, some people I know that did, did lose their homes were paying sixteen thousand dollars a year for fire insurance. Sixteen 000, just for fire insurance.
1: Now you know, sort of finishing up the the blame game here. If there's one thing that you know all three of my guests can agree on, it's frustration with both state and federal government on, frankly, just not doing their part to make the changes necessary to get out in front of these fires. For Bob. He represents a group of people that no longer has a voice really in the state legislature. As many people know, California is a democratic state, very heavily so. So for Bob, who identifies as a conservative, you know, he really, uh, him and his community don't get much of a say in Sacramento.
3: Yeah, As you know, California is basically a one-party rule. So in Central Valley, where I'm at, I mean, we are we are ag Um Fresno County, Tulare County, Kings County, massive agriculture. And the counties lean a little more conservative. However, the people in these counties don't feel like we have any voice in Sacramento. When you try to convince the legislators, you know, this is what should be done. We can show you from the past. Well, our representatives, they're beholden to their constituents. And if we're outnumbered, L.A. and San Francisco is sheer number of people. So our voice isn't heard, even though the devastation is happening right here in our own backyard.
1: And according to Bob, that proper forest management he's alluding to is nearly impossible to enforce with the volume of environmental lawsuits that those in California's agricultural businesses face. I tried to sort of look up and find the, you know, sort of the number of environmental lawsuits actively out there. And it is a literally you know, almost unidentifiable number. And it's quick when you dig into it a little bit that it's a mixture of things that seem valid and worthy of of filing a lawsuit over and a lot of things that seem kind of frivolous and, you know, uninformed. And it's that frivolous and uninformed part that is really frustrating people like Bob.
3: Both state and federal, as far as managing the forest, their hands are, are tied by environmental lawsuits. Even now, with all these dead trees, anytime a company wants to come in and try to, to salvage harvest, they're met with lawsuits in court that could tie up the project for years or decades. There's a tactic called Sue and Settle where if an environmental organization wants to change the rules of Forest Service or fishing Game or any other government agency, they merely sue. And it's cheaper for the agency to settle Change the rules that it is to fight these lawsuits.
1: Now, you may also recall from early this fall, President Trump pointed to the California state officials for poor forest management. If, if, if you if you are unsure or you didn't know already, President Trump does not like any Democratic governors or state governors at all. And will blame them for anything and everything. Although, to be fair, Democrats tend to do the same thing, which is why. Our whole entire political system is frustrating as hell. But as Jonathan points out, in Trump's all too typical fashion, he's avoiding some critical accountability on his own.
0: That kind of climate signal is very much part of the wildfires that we're seeing. But on the subject of forest management, I mean, yes, we need to do a better job. But is that job the role of the state of California? And this is what people are forgetting, is that 60% of the forests in California and where most of the fires have taken place have been on federally managed lands. And it is not in the budget nor the domain of the state of California, nor that of private landowners, to manage those lands. It's up to the federal government. But what we've seen is a shrinking of budgets for the Forest Service. And even worse than that, because of these wildfires, where's the Forest Service getting the money for the tankers, for the helicopters, for the trucks and the fire personnel to go up into the mountains to fight these fires? It has to come out of somewhere. And so you, now you're seeing the Forest Service paying more and more for these emergencies, and there's less and less money for the preventive actions that could be taking place. So. I agree that there's forest management is a problem, but it's candidly, it's not the state of California's problem. It's the federal government's problem.
1: As for Matt, he acknowledges the political divide and the issues it's causing, but wants to remind folks that for firefighters, those on the front line and first responders, you know, they don't have the luxury of playing politics and pointing fingers. They just have a job to do.
2: When the bell goes off and we hop on the fire truck or the fire engine to go out and do our job, we don't think about any of that stuff. It's not it's not on it's not on our mind. On what's on our mind is saving life and property. And we go out and we we stay out of the politics and we try to we try to do the best we can with what we have to to make sure that we preserve life and property. And that's that's what we do on both on both the fire end, law enforcement.
1: And what about those heroic firefighters? You know, it's so easy to forget just how much we rely on them and just how hard their work actually is because they do it sight and unseen. Firefighters and, you know, first responders in general do not ask for accolades and recognition. They're not the ones posting on social media every time they walk into a fire. They get out there, they do their job, they go home to their family, they wake up and do it again. So we really lose sight of just how hard these folks work. 70% of all firefighters in the U.S. are volunteers. Think about that. This is a job where you are risking your life purely for other people. You do not get any economic benefit for yourself. You risk your life for others, and 70% of them do it purely voluntarily. And the rest of the firefighting community is not paid all that well. It's, you know, so like it is a sacrifice on so many levels that firefighters make for us. You know, if you come across a firefighter in your day to day, please just thank that person, that man or woman, because they, they, They embody, you know, what, what sacrifice really is. And over 14,000 firefighters were deployed at the peak of the California wildfire this year, 14,000, 26 of those firefighters were killed. And every one of these warriors is dealing with unprecedented amounts of stress, exhaustion, and trauma. You know, we can't continue to push our first responders to their personal brink. We think of these men and women as unflappable, indestructible forces of nature. And as Matt explains, to a degree, that's true. And, you know, to a degree, it's good that we do. It gives us faith and trust in them. But these are human beings. And that often gets lost in the shuffle.
2: So, I mean, obviously, we want you guys to think, we want the general public to think of us that way. And because that's all true. You know, there, there are things that we do that most people wouldn't do. And there are, you know, when we, when everybody's running away, we're running to it. And I mean, that was obvious, right? On 9-11 when, when we lost 343 firefighters and that was just the firefighters that we lost, you know, those guys were running up the towers when everybody was running out. And, and that's what we do. You know, that's, that's what we do now. Now here's, here's the thing that's, it's important to know is that we spend a lot of time training. To do those things so there's we we lean on our training heavily and for the layperson to look at a structure that's on fire that we're going into is thinking oh my gosh those guys are running into a burning building right but we are trained to know signs and symptoms and we can make assessments of the building we can tell by what color the smoke is how it's traveling through the building but what the what the structure is looking like there these are all the things that we take into account very quickly to to make an assessment and decide whether or not you know what's the risk versus gain so we spend a lot of time training like a lot of time as a matter of fact i'm at the station with the training company so i see how hard these guys work and how important they are to our fire department department to make sure that everybody is trained up on The newest you know tactics and strategies the newest policies the newest equipment and we're constantly getting new equipment and and so i mean we it's we have a calling there's a certain kind there's certain kind of people that that take on these careers that we're just we're called to do it we're called to be of service in this way and that's and that's all true right but there's the other side of the coin That I'm happy to talk about that probably a lot of guys wouldn't talk about maybe due to, you know, ego is that we're human beings at the same time. And we, we sacrifice a lot, our families sacrifice a lot so that we can go out there and make the public feel safe and that we would give our lives up for a
1: stranger. I want to share an excerpt from my chat with Matt, just a little bit as a sort of tangential note to this conversation on the, on the wildfires, where he opened up to me about his own mental health journey as a firefighter. And I'm sharing this not only to sort of continue also to advocate for openness and canonness around mental health and mental health needs, but also that we can fully understand the cost of these disasters, you know, traditional economics have this notion of externalities. Externalities are these non-direct costs or, or what they categorize as non-direct costs that are kind of pushed into this sort of separate bucket, not affecting the sort of PL and the sort of direct, you know, success financially of, of, that, of that service or good. And this is a problem. Because not only are environmental factors pushed into externalities, but so is mental health.
2: So in a nutshell, you know, I after after about ten years on the job and being on the really busy side of town on purpose because I wanted I wanted to, you know, I wanted the excitement, I wanted the calls, I wanted to, to be the best firefighter that the city of Anaheim had, had ever seen. And that's that comes with experience and running calls, right? So what we know now is signs and symptoms of post traumatic stress, I just I didn't, I I just, I was drifting and I didn't realize I was drifting because I was brain injured. And what we, and what we know now is that post-traumatic stress is a brain injury. And so, you know, some of the, some of the first things that happened is I lost interest in the things I love doing. I was having nightmares. I wasn't able to sleep. I was, I would have insomnia. And then when I did fall asleep, I couldn't stay asleep because I'm having these nightmares. I'm swinging at my wife in the middle of the night. Uh, waking up in cold sweat and then you know and then the I'm not I'm yelling at the kids for being kids I start to isolate I start isolating at work by bringing my Xbox to work and playing video games and not engaging with the rest of the guys and then and then my back started hurting me and 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 I had very poor coping skills that I learned as a kid and which were you know alcohol and to, to name one of them. And eventually that, because of some poor choices and in the, my dissociative behaviors, it ended my marriage and it put me into a really gnarly da- downward spi- spiral um, up until I was trying to keep the wheels on the track and working as a, as a first responder, as a firefighter and a medic, trying to see my kids when I could, try to pay my child support and alibony, and then I blew my back out. And during that time, I was, I started really having a really bad suicidal ideation. And throughout that whole kind of the, the between 10 and 15 years, I reached out a couple of times to, to our EAP. I, you know, I went to a therapist who, who diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress disorder, told me I needed some Xanax and a good lawyer. You know, they just didn't, they didn't. You know, they did the best they could with what they had at the time. They just didn't know. It was, it was new, not new, but it was new in the fire service, right? They like military veterans, law enforcement officers, they were seeing it in those folks, but not in us, but it was there. It just, so after, after a suicide attempt, I ended up after my back surgery and a suicide attempt, I ended up at a five and a half day program for combat veterans and first responders called uh, Sable Warrior, which is a, it's a nonprofit experience that essentially I learned a lot there. It's a secular spiritual initiation that informs the daily practice on the emphasis of serving others. And, and, and I, they taught me how to meditate there and they taught me the importance of meditation for hypervigilant people and for people with post-traumatic stress and TBI. And, and I got off all the psych meds, I sobered up, I got myself into recovery and, and I meditate every day. And so, I was able to, to put the wheels back on the track. And after, you know, after that, I just really um, wanted to help the next person. You know, I, one of the things I learned at Save Warrior was that if you help enough people get what they want in their life, you look at where your life is at and it's usually pretty good. And so I, it was this whole new idea of being of service to other people.
1: Okay. So where does this leave us now that we've identified some of the different factors and causes, you know, how do we adapt? And what can we do to mitigate the size and scope of these damages going forward? If if you're familiar with kind of climate change and other bigger societal issues, you're probably familiar with adaptation and mitigation. There are some things we can do to mitigate the, the problem, even though we're never gonna like fully get rid of it. And there's some things we just need to adapt by our own behavior in order to sort of survive new normal. So let's start with mitigation. So to be clear... There is no stopping wildfires, hurricanes, and other natural disasters, not just in terms of their mere occurrence. Of course, that would happen with or without human activity, but even in terms of the growing scope and frequency because of human activity, this is going to be an ongoing issue. However, there are things we can do to hopefully mitigate their impact. As Jonathan from Climate Resolve explains, one thing we need to do fast is addressing the older damaged power lines running throughout the state of California and replace them with newer, safer versions. This will absolutely help cut down on some of the fire fire ignitions coming from these power lines. However, in order to do this, we have to move past the historic conflicts in this space to get electricity to everyone as efficiently and simply as possible, and change what we're optimizing for without leaving anyone behind. You'd be shocked about the degree of politics involved in governing utilities and making any changes to our utilities at all
0: it was a huge fight in years past and a a huge accomplishment to compel utilities to deliver electricity to everyone and that political fight was at its point in history a huge one and it was hugely successful but we're now at a point where you can't be defending the progressive wonderful thing that was enacted in 1930 in the year 2020 because technology is advanced and there's a way of accomplishing the same goals without using the old infrastructure
1: of course this is easier said than done. it's a herculean task that needs cooperation and just can't be finger pointing and shaming our utility providers like PG&E. PG&E paid a massive, massive lawsuit for their role in the 2018 fires. And that was probably justified, but still we need utilities, communities, legislature, and private businesses to work together. Now back to Bob, he thinks we need to re-embrace our local logging and timber industries. And he makes some interesting points. They can be a useful tool when done properly, for proper forest management while also supporting local working class and middle class Americans. As Bob points out, logging can be part of healthy forest management.
3: The overgrowth of the forest, it took another decade without any management. The way we're doing it now is I say, hands off, nature will take care of itself. Well, yes, it will, but it's going to be hundreds of years and we're not going to be here to see it if it ever comes back. You know, we stopped any forest fires back in the 20s if, it, if anything lit on fire we put it out and that was wrong also slow burns on a open forest is healthy i mean uh, the giant redwoods need fire for the the seeds in the pine cones to replant and we basically stopped all all fire activity so yeah that's that's bad on land you know we what we've learned since then and uh, logging can be part of a healthy forest. Actually, it is part of a healthy forest.
1: True loggers, the ones that deeply care about their craft, are absolutely stewards of the land. They simply have no incentive to over-harvest and damage the forest long-term. Corporations do, and corporations, and when corporations come into industries like logging and timber, the decisions they make from headquarters and offices far outside of those local communities, that creates a problem. But if it's done in rural at a local level, logging can actually be beneficial.
3: Okay, yeah, um, Loggers are, are stewards of the land. They're, they're not migrant loggers that travel all over, clear cutting, then move on. As I said earlier, you know th- these communities up here depended on the, the lumber mills, the loggers that live there. You're not going to destroy what makes your living. You're not going to destroy what you want your kids to go into a generation or three generations out. You're going to harvest, you're going to replant, and you're going to manage it. For the good of the forest, because when the forest is healthy, you have a job. When the forest is dead, your job and your town dies.
1: Speaking of local level jurisdiction, Jonathan also believes that more decision making should be done locally. He shared with me a very interesting idea of allowing local communities to create their own tax system for funding local needs. You know,
0: giving people power who are in these areas to create their own financing district. It's like there're different tax increment financing districts there's a whole bunch of opportunities out there where people can just say hey we're in this especially prone area we're going to tax ourselves another 3% or something like that on top of our bill we're going to scare up you know some funds that add up to you know a million dollars a year and with those funds what we're going to do is reduce the amount of threats facing our communities. And I think that is something that we need to be open to and experiment with.
1: Circling back to the logging discussion, you know, I, I'm pointing this out because I, I personally share that up until my chat with Bob, all things logging, timber, any form of cutting down a tree to me was evil and anti-environmental. And I'm sure many of you feel this have the same visceral reaction. After all, cutting down trees seems like the most anti-green thing to do at face value. And every eco-minded person, after all, is always out there planting more trees. So wouldn't cutting them down be the opposite of that? Well, as I learned, not just from Bob, but doing my own research after that, it's about where you cut them down and how you do it and the caps you put on it that matter. Nature has natural fires for a reason in order to recycle trees, spread seeds, and create new fertile ground for growth. But human intervention has long since disrupted a lot of nature's natural processes. So we need to pick up some of that slack. Now, one might say, well, let nature run its course and solve everything on its own. Yeah, that would be fine if it wasn't for nearly 8 billion humans that still need food and water and land to live on. Nature absolutely could solve every climate issue on its own across the board if we all went to Mars. But that's not happening. So we shouldn't put all the loggers and agriculturalists into one bucket. Yes, there are those out there who abuse this work for growth and greed and cause many problems in doing so. And that should be regulated and combated. But there's also a perception problem here. A perception that everyone out there living off the land is a problem and hurting the earth. And everyone out there sitting behind a computer screen calling them out is an activist. Yeah, that's not true, and it's not fair to those working our lands and doing it in the right way, and frankly, feeding us and providing providing for us to put everybody in that in that negative bucket.
3: The one thing that we have to do to stop this is change the public perception. Um, the logger is not evil, um, and he's not. I said you don't destroy what makes your living. You just don't do it. 400 trees per acre on land that should support 40 that's that's that is not sustainable that's not not green that's 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 creating the fireball we got you know we need to manage it forest service can make money off these timber contracts and put that money right back into more forest management or currently forest service spends over 55 percent of their budget fighting fires instead of maintaining the land In a way where the fires would not get catastrophic.
1: So then there's the fact that so many of our first responders are underfunded on the state and local level. This is also a mitigation tactic. We need our first responders to be healthy and well-funded and well-equipped. How can we expect local firefighters to mitigate damage from these outbreaks if they're not resourced to do so? This has to change. We need to create more jobs in this field and stop operating first responder services on such a thin line of financial solvency.
2: For for me, as, as far as first responders go, I, you're going to see when all the, when all the dust settles from everything that's going on right now. I'm really I'm really hoping that the people that make the decisions in the world can see that we need to we need more um, funding, we need more avenues for mental health for everybody, and not just. You know, I, yeah, I see a therapist twice a week and I, I've done EMR, in EMDR and I've, I meditate every day and I'm in 12, two 12 step programs and I, you know, I do group therapy. And, but like you said, not, there's not one, when it comes to mental health, there's not one fix for everybody. It's just, it's, it's different for everybody. And, and people just need, they need a place where they can go with other human beings where they feel safe.
1: Ultimately, the most impactful mitigation tool. Well, maybe the most unrealistic, slowing down climate change. Now we have to do it. And we have to be hopeful to a degree in our process of doing so. We have to be optimistic. And we need to act with a sense of urgency in doing so. However, even if we do everything right on the climate issue and slowing down emissions and living more sustainably, it's going to take time. It's going to take 20 to 30 years at best until we start to see the benefits of that.
0: Yeah, it's baked it's baked in, my friend. It is there. It the the emissions are such that we could turn into climate saints tomorrow and do everything perfectly. And we should, we should do it, but it would still take twenty to thirty years before we would see the fruits of our sacrifice.
1: So in the meantime. While we're doing that hard work for that long-term impact, we need other mitigation services and practices along the way, be it improved local governance, maintaining our forests via sustainable practices, or updating our power lines and utility grids. So how about adaptation? How are we going to have to change the way we live in accordance with this new normal? Well, Jonathan shared many insightful ideas on this topic worth noting. For one, he explained the notion of living more densely as a way to scale back local transportation and living more sustainably.
0: So what does that mean to live more densely? It means that, in theory, you don't have to get in the car for everything. You can you need to do some grocery shopping. Well, maybe you either do it once every two weeks, or you you take you walk or you take your bike to pick up some groceries. and and therefore, your street shouldn't be uh, a slaughterhouse if you're walking or biking. A friend of mine was hit by a car just last week and killed. And other people I know have been either seriously injured or killed just by the simple act, the least violent way of getting around besides walking is biking, the simple act of bicycling. And it puts a target on your back. I bicycle all the time. I helped start this thing in LA called Ciclavia where we take over the streets and we, we ride our bikes and, or, or skate or run or whatever down, down these streets that are closed. And, and the idea behind Ciclavia, the idea of greater density is that we want to make living in Los Angeles a, a, a better experience. But then you have people stuck in a early 60s mentality where they believe it's their birthright to be able to get in a car and drive somewhere and there's parking available for you wherever you drive. It, and that it's a birthright to be able to go as fast as possible from point A to point B. And the great cities on this planet, the places where we buy tickets to go visit, you know, when we, when we could go visit places like Paris or London or, you know, Rome, those places are terrible car cities. You do not want to be in a car in London. I have been, it's a terrible experience or in Paris, you're sitting in traffic, but it's a wonderful place to walk and it's turning into a wonderful place to be on your bicycle. So by leaving nature alone, by letting there to be much more biodiversity by not encroaching on wild places. I think we can take on a lot, of our, a lot of our climate emissions by restricting development from wild places, and we can make our cities more interesting and more enjoyable. But there has to be at least this sense that we have to move on from the automobile ruling Our public spaces. We have to take it back. And I think that's the moment that we're candidly in at this moment. We have to figure out a way of thanking the boomer generation for all their contributions that they gave society, but disagreeing with them on the primacy of the automobile for everything and to create cities that have
1: greater density. As more and more people move into cities, away from fire hazard zones, and live more densely as he points out, we need to properly incentivize the creation of affordable housing. And we need to do this proactively, not reactively as we've kind of done to date in response to gentrification. Now, we also heard from Bob earlier about the insurance industry and how it's pricing many people out. Well, this is another area we need to adapt and update.
0: One interesting idea has to do with insurance. So if you're paying a mortgage, you have insurance. If you've already paid your mortgage, there's nothing in the in the in code that mandates that you have fire insurance or house insurance. But in a way, the free market could send a signal to people who live in areas that are fire prone that you you really gotta pay for the risk or you really have to build the hell out of your house to be, you know, fire resistant or else you're going to pay through the nose on your insurance. Now, I think it would be great if insurance could be changed so that, you know, you could get a discount if you do a lot of the right things related to resisting, you know, the embers and other things that might burn down your home. That would be interesting. But I also think it would be interesting for the insurance companies to to actually be able to take climate change into account and to say, according to our models, according to what we see, this is what it would really cost. So there's that. That's one thing that we could do through policy that would send a very strong price signal related to fires. Another one is on... You know, giving people power who are in these areas to create their own financing district.
1: But perhaps Matt was the most poignant in his adaptation advice in reminding us that perhaps the biggest thing we need to do is putting a stop to the divisiveness and polarization of our society. We are never going to get out in front of these challenges if we're too divided and unable to work together. As he points out, we need to bring things back to the tribe. To transcend acting out of self-interest and towards a communal one, the way things used to be.
2: As human beings, it's just gotta. We gotta just come from a place of love, you know. We need to come from a place of love. We need to come place. Come from a place of empathy. We need to come from a place of understanding, and we need to just. We need to help each other, and we need to set our our some of this stuff aside, and and just do what we can to help the next person for the betterment of the tribe. See, we've lost we've lost a lot of that in our culture. You know, their ancient tribes used to take their, they used to take the sons from their, from their moms when they were little and they initiated them. And what that meant essentially was, come on, take me from mommy and we're going to go out and we're going to build a house for our neighbor, right? We're going to go out and we're going to farm this land to to feed the tribe. And we're going to, and we've lost that in our culture. And And that's part of it, right? From my perspective, right? It's just a lot of people, it's just about me, me, me. What can I get? What can I do? We just need to get, we need to get back to the tribe, you know, mentality of just, of doing, doing what's good for the, for the greater, you know, for greater humanity.
1: You know, if there's one lesson for me that I take away from the sort of state of the, of the USA in 2020 it's sadly that our country is one of extreme self-interest. And while there are plenty of positive effects of feeding ambition and innovation, it's gotten to a point where we're fighting each other more than we're fighting the biggest threats and problems we face as a nation and as a species. One thing that all three of our guests can agree upon, including myself, is we love the natural world and we need to stand up and protect it. Now, while they may approach this existential threat with slightly different viewpoints on how we got here and what needs to be done in what order. In the end, all their perspectives are valuable, valid, and help point to things we need to consider and work on. There is no silver bullet for stopping these wildfires, just as there is no silver bullet for solving the climate crisis. We have to approach it from many different angles and do so simultaneously. We must all do our part and support each other in doing so, And let us be reminded that while we have differences, we're always more similar than what
3: meets the eye. I want uh, all of us, no matter what political side we're on, to be good stewards of the land. Um, When the land is healthy, we're all healthy.
2: No, I think, you know what? Mother Earth always wins. (laughs) That's That's the way I see it. You know? So we better wake up.
0: Our choices are between a warmer world. And a world in which it's too inhospitable for human civilization at all, and those are our choices, and it's not a good choice. It's I I would prefer another choice. I would prefer like you know, you know, a beautiful meadow with watching beautiful butterflies titter to and fro. I like that future, but that's not our future, and so we have to make some very hard choices to. Really take a hard stand on fossil fuel extraction and emissions and try to find ways to help people in that transition going forward. And we're going to have to adapt because it's, it's too late, baby. The, the impacts are here and now. And in Southern California, we've been breathing in the smoke for the last month. It's been terrible. Climate change has arrived and it's in
1: our lungs. So big thanks to Bob, Matt, and Jonathan for taking the time to contribute so much to this episode. Thank you all for listening. I hope you learned something and took something away from this as I did making it. God bless everyone who has been hurt, killed, or displaced by the 2020 wildfires and your family and friends. Let's learn from it and let's take the steps to mitigate and adapt accordingly. Till next time, I'm James. Thank you.